0: Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I'd like to look at the work of the current United States Poet Laureate, Ada Lamone. Now, Ada Lamone, I really want to call her Ada throughout this podcast because it's really one of my favourite names. So um, for now I'll keep it formal, but I will lapse into that. Ada Lamone is and this is always mentioned in anything you ever read about her, she is the first Mexican-American Poet Laureate. And she wrote a poem. I won't do this whole poem, but I just to give you a, an insight into the honesty levels that um, Ada operates at, she wrote a poem called The Contract Says We'd Like the Conversation to Be Bilingual. It's about being a Mexican-American poet and about what, I suppose, white audiences expect from you. People who hire you to do readings, etc. And uh, the line breaks in this poem is what I'd just like to focus on for a short time. So I won't read the whole bit through. I'm only going to do a couple of tiny bits of this, but anyway, just so you get a taster. This is... The contract says we'd like the conversation to be bilingual. So it's about the contract you get for a poetry reading. I imagine an educational establishment, an art centre, etc. When you come, bring your brown. Now that's where the line ends. And you know that line breaks often are suspense management. So, oh, I wonder what she wants to bring that's brown. When you come, bring your brownness, so we can be sure to please. Line break. The fonders. So, um, <laughs> that's the first line. And it's in, and it's in hard. Bring your brownness is quite a thing to say to a Mexican-American poet. I don't imagine they literally say that, but she is... Feeling that certainly, and also feeling that she is a, a box being ticked to ensure funding. And I'll just give you one small bit in which she uh, this is a great little couplet, and an unforgiving insight into what these event organizers want from a biracial poet and how they want to stage manage that poet's truth will you tell us the stories that make line break oh, i wonder what's going to make us cry make us think of the past will you tell us the stories that make us uncomfortable but not complicit <laughs> um so i think what she's doing is she's reading between the lines to identify what some of those who ask her to perform her poetry, want from her as a Mexican-American poet, and uh, I like it, and it's courageous and funny, but also a bit disturbing. It's interesting that I focus early on on her line breaks because Ada's poetry, like much contemporary poetry, often doesn't come with the sort of regular fixtures and fittings that we expect of uh, poetry. You could almost say poetry is not always completely obvious in her work. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I just think this is the way she operates her poems or a lot of her poems begin with a sort of prosy retelling of some incident quite straight really and then she moles over that incident and what it means and offers analysis of it and that's when the poetry tends to kick in so sometimes um not with the, the the extracts that i just read but sometimes there are no line breaks in a uh, ada lamone poem and rhyme is internal and often very well hidden you don't get regular meter it's well this is what this is how she defines poetry i, I read this in a in an interview she she defines poetry as and i quote the compression of language, something distilled. And she goes on to say, what I'm most interested in is the way language is holding its truth. That sounds uh, a bit like something an analyst might say to you. I mean, like a psychoanalyst. But I think what she means is that, yes, she wants a poem to be language compressed, as she said, absolutely the minimum needed to get across the maximum truth a lot communicated by a little so the way the language is holding its truth, she wants to say the full and complete truth of her thought but she wants no space inside that poetic canister she wants to say the minimum to achieve the maximum that is, um, that's her emphasis on poetry rather than meter etc we don't want to think of her too much in the abstract let's hear an Ada Lamon poem from 2018 and it's called The Raincoat and uh, as I said they often start almost like like a conversation you could have at, at a bus stop and then they um, collar into poetry, shall we say. When the doctor suggested surgery and a brace for all my youngest years, my parents scrambled to take me to massage therapy, deep tissue work, osteopathy, and soon my crooked spine unspooled a bit. I could breathe again and move more in a body unclouded by pain. So, when the doctor suggested surgery and a brace for all my youngest years, you could, I mean, there's alliteration in that. I don't want to talk down her poetic techniques. Suggested surgery and youngest years. And I think she quite enjoys the sort of technical terminology. My parents scrambled to take me to massage therapy, deep tissue work, osteopathy. The parents scrambled, I assume in the military sense of scramble, uh, to go into action at short notice. And soon my crooked spine unspooled. we got the SP sounds there. And soon my crooked spine unspooled a bit. Unspooled like a tape unwinding. It loosened. I could breathe again and move more in a body unclouded by pain. Now that's a poetic terminology, I would say. Unclouded by pain. Pain is like cloudiness on a summer's day it's always there the shadow of it spoiling everything you do a little bit so there's her just telling us something that happened to her her parents took her to a lot of treatments because she had spinal issues which left her in pain My mum would tell me to sing songs to her the whole 45-minute drive to Middle Two Rock Road and 45 minutes back from physical therapy. She'd say, even my voice sounded unfettered by my spine afterward. So I sang and sang because I thought she liked it. I never asked her what she gave up to drive me. Or how her day was before this chore. Okay. My mum would tell me to sing songs to her the whole 45 minute drive to Middle Two Rock Road. Middle Two Rock Road is an actual road in, in, uh, in California, which is where Ada grew up. I'll... Whether this is Ada speaking or, as always I say, the voice of the poem, it is the voice of the poem, but Ada does deal very much in the autobiographical. Although there is another quote from her where she says she's very interested in the strange, twisting narrative of the inner voice, the voice underneath the voice. And I think what she's talking about mainly there is the unsaid that sort of bleeds out of her poems, part of that compression, part of that extreme distillation of uh, of language is that, that so much is inferred that she doesn't need to put into words. But I also think it may refer to those twin voices always present in a poem. You know, the poet's voice and the voice of the poem. Uh, we rarely get the actual poet's voice without some restructuring some use of persona my mum would tell me to sing songs to her the whole 45 minute drive to middle two rock road and 45 minutes back from my physical therapy she'd say even my voice sounded unfettered by my spine afterwards and i believe this is one of the uh, results of this kind of therapies that basically you breathe better Afterwards, you've been opened up. I, I suspect, again, this is something, it, this is part of that inner voice of the poem. I suspect the mother got the child to sing on the way there because it helped free up her spine before the treatment. But there would have been no need to expand on that to the child, of course. So I sang and sang because I thought she liked it. And then this sort of beginning of a realisation. Remember, she talked about her parents earlier. They'd scrambled to take me to all these various therapies. But then a bit of doubt comes in. I never asked her what she gave up to drive me or how her day was before this chore. So now the scramble has become a chore. And yet she just accepted that her mum drove for 90 minutes to take her to a therapy and back and never asked what her mum was losing, giving up, how that changed her mum's life. And this is where we come to the crux of the poem. Again, like I say, we've had a bit of conversational stuff and now the poet sort of stops and thinks, what does this mean? What she really needs is a metaphor. Hold it, what's that in my wing mirror? Here we go. Today, at her age, I like that sort of filmic opening. You could use the same actress to play the now grown-up daughter uh, that you used to play the mother. So it's putting herself now more in her mother's place. She's had this thought about what the mother gave up to drive her to therapy, how her day was before this chore. So now she's thinking more like the mother. She's walking in her mother's shoes, or driving in them, at least. Today, at her age, I was driving myself home from yet another spying appointment. Again, then, she's in the role of her mother. Now she's driving herself to these Appointments. I'm going to start from the beginning of this. Today at her age, I was driving myself home from yet another spying appointment, singing along to some maudlin but solid song on the radio. So although her mother isn't there anymore, she still sings on the way to and from these appointments, these spying appointments as she calls them. She's still taking some sort of support from her mother, even though she now drives herself. She still follows that advice of singing. And she sings to some maudlin but solid song on the radio, sort of solid, sturdy but unspectacular, I suppose. So, any old song... She's singing along to. And it's, there's, there's more going on here. This is one of her, um, I feel this is part of her strange twisting narrative of the inner voice. I think that this poem is a song. A song about the journey to and from. Every poem is a song to some extent. And this feels like she is singing but she's singing now some truth about her her mother and their relationship and maybe this poem this song has the same freeing releasing effect that the uh, song in the car has so then she sees something and this is the whole turning point i just want to give you the last bit again today at her age i was driving myself home from yet another spine appointment singing along to some maudlin but solid song on the radio. And I saw a mom take her raincoat off and give it to her younger daughter when a storm took over the afternoon. My God, I thought, my whole life I've been under her raincoat, thinking it was somehow a marvel that I never got wet. And as I read that to you, I feel my throat tightening because that child-mother thing is so perfectly summed up here. She just saw this selfless act by, as she says, a mom. This is not someone she knows. This is in the street on the drive back. I saw a mom take her raincoat off and give it to her young daughter when a storm took over the afternoon. So it's a big storm. It's took over the afternoon. It's changed things. My God, I thought. My whole life I've been under her raincoat, thinking it was somehow a marvel that I never got wet. So she's been so protected and supported and cared for by her mother. She's been under her raincoat in the storm life's storm certainly the storm of the pain that she's been through as a child and as an adult and there she was thinking it was somehow a marvel that I never got wet but in fact of course it begins in the poem with the idea I never asked her what she gave up to drive me or how her day was before this chore and um, it's that beautiful realisation of how much she owes and that for me I won't say a typical Ada Lamone poem because her poems are very various but that starting off conversational and then hitting you with something where you think wow that's very uh, Ada-esque if I may uh, if I may use that I'm Talking about her sort of non-poetic style whilst emphasising uh, the poetry, that's again part of the sort of contradiction that's going on with, with Ada's work. I'll give you another quote. I like a conversational poem. This is obviously a quote from Ada. I like a conversational poem, but even in those kind of poems, I want to make sure that every single word that I'm using belongs to the poem. So it's apt and it's correct and it is tight and economical. She goes on. And that the words musicality and syntax is working for the poem as a whole. So it may not be overtly poetical to our, certainly to our, I and maybe not even at first to our ear but what she's writing is i suppose i don't want to undermine her role as a, as a poet by any means because i really like her stuff but she's writing a sort of super prose in a way she's not too interested in the extraneous trimmings of poetry she only wants to use what what does this thing with what gets across a big thing in a small vehicle that's what it's about i'm going to read you another one from uh from 2015 and it's called before and uh i'll just read you the first four lines to begin they're all there it's short this poem no shoes and a glossy red helmet I rode on the back of my dad's Harley at seven years old. Stuff going on there. No shoes for me has always been a symbol of freedom. I remember beginning dating a fabulous French woman many, many years ago. And she said to me, I became attracted to you when I saw that you had no shoes and socks on. And I thought, oh, this is a man who loves freedom very French thing to say I know and it is a symbol of freedom unless it's worn by those middle aged men in linen suits who people the Emmanuel movies of the 70s but we don't talk about those guys no shoes and a glossy red helmet you know even the helmet which is a practical safety thing sounds like it's exciting and expressing freedom glossy red helmet I rode on the back of my dad's Harley. There's a bit of childlike pride in that, isn't it? My dad had a Harley Davidson motorbike, not just some little thing. At seven years old, I mean, just to give you the line breaks on this, no shoes and a glossy red helmet I rode on the back of my dad's. So the last of those four lines is Harley at seven years old, which is a sort of a formula for unsafety, you might say. Harley at seven years old. It's a big, fast, scary bike with a little seven-year-old on the back. No shoes on. Nice helmet, holding on tight to her dad. As I said, the poem's called Before, and now at this point... After that beautiful opening image, we get the befores. And this list is, it's like a child's list, but this is, well, see what you think. On the back of my dad's Harley at seven years old, before the divorce, before the new apartment, before the new marriage, before the apple tree, before the ceramics in the garbage, before the dog's chain, before the koi were all eaten by the crane, before the road between us, there was the road beneath us, and I was just big enough not to let go. As I say, it's, it's, it sounds like a child's list that was repeated before the, before the, before the, but obviously it's a child's list with some some pain in it so let's look at the list because the list itself is a fabulous mix of what you might expect and what you really didn't see coming before the divorce obviously that's going to make the freedom and simple joy of riding on the back of your dad's harley with your glossy red helmet on it's going to mar that joy Before the divorce, before the new apartment, so he wasn't around so much, before the new marriage, so there was a rival for his attentions, before the apple tree, that to me is one of the great ones, because that makes it feel even more like a child's list. And also, a poet, I always say as a stand-up comedian, I do a deal with the audience, and 95% of the jokes are for the audience, but I do like a few that are just for me, that I like doing and mean something to me, even though they don't go that well. I think 5% is acceptable at my age. You know, give him a bit of slack, that kind of theory. And I think a poet does a certain amount of that. I think a poet gives the audience things that they can grasp and understand but why not have some stuff for yourself as long as it has an echo that the audience can hear before the apple tree that's something that happened isn't it an apple tree was cut down apple tree you used to climb on maybe you had to move and you can't go there anymore whatever happened that was it, it was big to that kid and it remains big to the speaker now looking back before the ceramics in the garbage, now that either feels like things that used to be valuable being thrown out or it feels post-argument to me, things have been thrown and your evidence for that argument as a kid is that you see these things broken in the bin and think, how did that get broken? So that could be arguments with, with the original wife, I guess. All these things that you feel as a kid, the significance wasn't all there. But now the poet is looking back and maybe seeing the significance. And we, as I say, feel an echo of it, even if we don't totally get it. Before the dog's chain, that again suggests a sort of new ownership, a new regime, a more constrictive way of living. Even the dog is feeling the lack of freedom. And this fabulous last entry on the list, before the koi were all eaten by the crane. So the koi carp got eaten by the crane. That was obviously quite a horrible, upsetting and chaotic event. And that happened after the divorce, uh, it sounds like. And so um, it's one of those things when you just think the world is turn into excrement yeah that one also the uh the crane at the koi carp awful but here before the road between us there was the road beneath us that is a beautifully balanced thing so before the road between us and i think now with her father it could be A physical road between them because he's moved away, but also a road between them because she can never be as close to him again, I think. Before the road between us, there was the road beneath us. In other words, the road underneath that Harley Davidson when I was seven. And I was just big enough not to let go. And clearly now she's still not. Letting go, she's holding on to all this stuff to these memories and still holding on to her dad now metaphorically. okay, last bit. Heno Road, creek just below rough wind chicken legs i I would say that's a bit for her, not for us. Heno Road is an actual road in California. I looked it up. Creek, just below, bit of geography. Rough wind, chicken legs. Chicken legs, we will probably never know. I don't need to know. Maybe there's, you know, there's some in the bag and she's just aware of them. Maybe she's called chicken legs as a child, as a a childish nickname. It doesn't matter, does it? It just feels like a beautiful little personal thing. Now, it ends big. And I never knew survival was like that. If you live, you look back and beg for it again. The hazardous bliss before you know what you would miss. Yes, there was a rhyme sneaking in there. The hazardous bliss before you knew what you would miss. So let's just hear that one more time. And I never knew survival was like that. If you live, you look back and beg for it again, the hazardous bliss before you know what you would miss. And when she talks about survival, I think she means that she didn't crash on that dangerous Harley thing. She didn't fall off. She held on. But she never knew survival was like that. She thought it was wholly good as a child because obviously the whole imperative is holding on to your dad and not falling off. If you live, you look back and beg for it again. The hazardous bliss before you know what you would miss. So what does that mean? I think it means if you live... So as you get older, you look back and beg for it again, the hazardous bliss. So you long for a time when you could be in that dangerous situation on your dad's back, but not really frightened, just excited and happy with your glossy red helmet shining in the sunshine, clamped tightly to your dad. If you live, you look back and beg for it again, the hazardous bliss before you know what you would miss. It wasn't so scary then because you didn't know the implications of the danger. You didn't know as a child, as a seven-year-old, you weren't fully aware of what some crash would take away. But now you know. You know what you would have lost because you lost it anyway you lost it through divorce and some sort of separation not through a crash but you are not holding on tight to your dad anymore and so such hazardous bliss you can't you're not capable of that anymore because you know more about end results that's what comes with getting older Maybe the hazardous bliss also refers to that period before her father left. Maybe it was, I guess, it was a hazardous situation as far as the marriage was concerned. A tense home life, possibly with flying ceramics. But a seven-year-old was able to live oblivious to those hazards happy and uh unworried because she didn't realize just like when she was on the bike she didn't realize what she would be losing if it all went wrong she didn't realize how much she'd miss her parents and her being together it's no coincidence is it because ada is smart that the bike ride and all the stuff about the divorce the list and all those things that both of those are about somehow holding on or not holding on to her dad. It's a sad poem, and she's very good at sadness, Ada. I don't mean that in a throwaway manner. She said an interesting thing, which I don't want to describe her poems as therapy. They're much more than that. But here's what she said. The more grief I put in a poem, the more I am able to move freely through the world because I have named it, spoken it and thrown it out into the sky. So I think one of the key things in in a poem like, like before and like The Raincoat is that life of pain, that not fully appreciating your mother that not fully appreciating the joyous if hazardous freedom of being a 7-year-old clinging onto your dad on his Harley Davidson that grief that loss that sadness she's really happy to put out there because it's it's freeing for her because I have named it, spoken it, and thrown it out into the sky. And I think being aware of someone doing that when you read her poems, being aware of that happening, is an exhilarating feeling, an inspirational feeling. And, of course, because she's a fabulously skilled poet, we don't merely observe that experience, but share it in some some deep way. Ada Limon is, as I say, the current USA Poet Laureate and that can only be a good thing. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode and you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that but more jokes. (laughs) See you next week.